Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you'll help us to think about your faithfulness and your sovereignty, your lordship over us and over all the nations. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to come with me to Psalm 1, and most of our focus will actually be in the second psalm. And since it's spring almost, since as most of you know, I am really pretty quite crafty. I put that out. A little harbinger of hope for us. Becky's away, as you, many of you know, so I did that all by myself. And just as an update, I'm good on the provision of dinners through Monday night, but Tuesday, still kind of a need. <laughs> Pastor Don has started this Visions of God in the Psalm series, and so I thought it would be uh, meaningful and helpful to go back to the first two Psalms, because most Bible interpreters believe that the first two psalms are really an introduction to the rest of the book, to the rest of the 150 psalms. That Psalm 1 focuses on the individual believer. And so what it means to rightly live in relationship to God as an individual. But Psalm 2 reminds us that this same God is Lord of the nations. And so we want to rightly respond to both of them um, as we respond to the entire book of Psalms. And so briefly, because it's related to the second Psalm that I wanted to focus on, to think together through Psalm 1. And there we read, Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law, the Torah, it's instruction, not just legislation, but it's all the divinely given, inspired instruction that David had in his Bible and that we have in ours. Of course, we have a lot more, but it's the word of God written. From the revelation beginning that was given to Moses. And the blessed individual, the blessed human being, is the person who doesn't keep company and have the values and worldview of the wicked or sinners or mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's the person, it's another way of saying a believer. It's the person who just in every area of life meditates on. It's the word literally for mutter. They just, they always have the word of God on their lips, on their minds, thinking about how it applies to their circumstance or to their situation. This person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither Whatever he does prospers. 
this kind of person flourishes in all the ways that matter most when it comes to being what a human being is supposed to be. The psalmist is saying, if you make it your habit of rightly engaging with the word of God that's available to you, you will flourish and thrive. Do you see here how much confidence the godly person has in the word of God? How much they delight in the word of God written? And how powerful David believes the inscripturated word of God is for bringing him to spiritual health and vitality? How different is this delight and confidence in the scriptures from some versions of supposed spirituality today that encourage people wanting to hear a healing word from the Lord to close their Bibles and open wide their imaginations to receive some supposed direct message from him instead. That's different than what we're finding here in this passage and in Psalm 19. David repeats his same delight and confidence in the written word of God. The law of the Lord, he says, is perfect. It's all that I need. It's complete. It's comprehensive. And what's its effect? Refreshing the soul. The precepts of the Lord, he says, are right. And what's its effect? giving joy to the heart. You need your soul refreshed because of circumstances, because of your past, because of problems. Then go and learn the truths and the realities that are in the Word of God. You need joy in your heart in the face of what you're experiencing. Go to the precepts of the Lord that are right and perfect and complete. And learn how to receive from a sure word from God inspired in Scripture. Whatever balm or medication your soul needs. Consider also the case of Jesus himself. It seems to me very telling, and I've talked about this before, that even our Lord himself, the Son of God, when facing the most intense time of trial and testing from Satan the temptation to doubt that he really and truly was God's beloved son because that's how the temptation would phrase, if thou be the son of God, question mark. That in that moment of severe and painful soul testing, Jesus himself did not get some instant, new, direct word from the Lord. What did he do? He relied upon what he had stored away in his heart and mind, what he had memorized, and maintained his assurance and confidence that he was indeed God's beloved child, overthrowing Satan's lies again and again in the temptation with the truth from God that was introduced by Jesus every time with, it is written. Is this the confidence you have in your Bible? When you need to hear a word from the Lord, is this 
where you listen, it was enough, more than enough. David wrote Psalm 119, the biggest book in the Bible, celebrating all that the Word of God written meant to him and did for him. Jesus depended on his Bible and Scripture meditated on, memorized, and meaningfully applied to the real-life situation he was in. And so I have to say it seems to me very, very sad when Bible-believing Christians appear to have lost confidence in their Bibles as the Word of God written and have lost confidence that it will work powerfully and authentically to heal their souls and refresh their spirits. Tim Keller has a great new book called Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. But in that book about prayer, he addresses this very same troubling trend, drawing from the teaching of Luther, the great reformer. Keller writes, Martin Luther was adamant that we must never get beyond God's words in the Bible or we can't know whom we're conversing with. We must first hear the word and then afterwards the Holy Ghost works in our hearts. He works in the hearts of whom he will, said Luther, and how he will, but never without the word. J.I. Packer, one of the church's leading teachers and theologians today, puts the historic evangelical teaching on this subject even more simply and directly when he says, there are no words of God spoken to us at all today except through the words of Scripture. That's been the belief of the evangelical churches like ours down through the years. But it seems like for a variety of reasons, that belief has gotten confused and muddled. And it has serious consequences. And so the first psalm teaches us that the blessed man, the spiritually vital woman according to Scripture, is the person who is gladly devoted to Scripture, meditating on it, applying its truth to their hearts, and doing it, Day and night. Not so the wicked. The only ultimately other kind of person, other kind of human being there is, is now what's going to be described. They're not rightly engaged habitually to the Word of God with all the soul-securing, stabilizing effect that that has. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. There's just nothing enduring. There's nothing permanent. There's nothing ultimately substantial and weighty to such a life. Therefore, the wicked won't stand in the judgment. When judgment day happens, they're not going to, they'll fall. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And then Psalm 1 ends with this summary. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He's always watching, providing, caring, guiding, steering. He watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. 
But when the Bible and the book of Psalms teach us about the way of the wicked, it doesn't only think about individuals. It thinks much bigger and broader, too, the ways of the wicked when it comes to nations and cultures and governments. That's what we see in the second psalm. You know, honestly, it would, easy to be, it would be easy to be alarmist, but when we see what's happening in the world today, defying God and godliness, manifesting itself in hundreds of ways, the unspeakable brutality of ISIS, the moral madness engulfing our own country at an amazing rate, it seems, including the mangling of the meaning of marriage, human trafficking, the ongoing scandal of abortion, and even when it comes to religion, professing Christianity, and even so-called evangelicalism, there are so many weird and dangerous ideas and trends which in their actual effect, oppose and counteract God's true gospel work in the world. It can certainly seem and feel like true faith and godliness and the basic human goodness that arise out of these, including in cultures and societies, that it's dying out. Almost as if God's purposes, they're just not prevailing. They're being beaten back into retreat, and you can have your religion, and you can have your Christianity, but you better keep it to yourself, all privatized and domesticated and tamed. The truth is, when we as believers take a good hard look at news today, it's very easy to feel that in spite of the old lyric of the Christmas hymn, the world is oft so strong. The wrong is oft so strong. It's when we're tempted to think and to feel that way that it's wise for us to turn to the second psalm. Why do the nations conspire? Rage. And the peoples plot in vain. You know that word for plot is the same word in Hebrew, that's translated meditate in Psalm 1. The root meaning is mutter. A human being either habitually mutters about the Word of God and how it applies to guide and to govern their life, or they mutter against God. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh, against the Lord, and against his anointed. What does the word Christ mean? Anointed. Anointed one. Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now to understand this psalm right, we need to realize that when it was first inspired the Holy Spirit and David wrote it, he wrote about his dynasty, the kings that would come from his line. And in those cultures, when a kind of great king, when there was going to be a transition, the lesser kings, and that's kind of how it worked out 
are like, okay, we're done with David and his dynasty. It is time for us to reassert our independence. Let's break these bonds. Let's cast off these fetters. So that would have been its original meaning and application. But when you trace out the way this psalm is used in the rest of the Bible, it's unmistakably clear that what is ultimately in view is God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah. Messiah Christ, both words being anointed. So what's ultimately viewed are human beings, human leaders, revolting against the government of God, the rule and sovereignty of God. They may pay lip service. Throughout the centuries, there have been those who pay lip service to the true God, but their actual policies and values and culture and actions are in defiance against him. And so that's what's going on. Let us break God and Jesus's chains, we view living under their authority as this intolerable tyranny. And we're not going to do it. We've had it. It sounds bad. It sounds like quite a revolt. It sounds very threatening. Or at least that might be how it sounds to us. But we get a glimpse of how it sounds to God in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In the language of Messiah, the way handled, the Lord shall have them in derision. It's as if God says, when he sees, we don't like the rule. We're going to, really? What a joke. That's kind of reorienting. That which seems so powerful and irreversible and unbeatable to us as human beings on earth. The one enthroned in heaven's like, what a joke. He laughs. But that's only his first response. Because the next thing that we find from the Almighty is very different. In verse 5, then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on my holy mountain. God gives notice to the kings of the earth. Here's how it's going to be, God says. I am going to reassert my rightful reign and put down your laughable rebellion, and I am going to do it through the person I have chosen, my anointed one, Christ. And then next, the anointed king speaks up, the one being crowned, confirming what the Almighty has just declared, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. I'll tell you what the great Lord said. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. 
because in the cultures of the time, the coronation of a king amounted to his being adopted as a son by his God. And that was embraced in the ultimate true way in Israel. This is an echo of the covenant made with King David in 2 Samuel 7. We don't have time to go there now, but you can trace that out sometime this afternoon. And so when Jesus came, who was Messiah, Christ, anointed one, when he was born, the angel told Mary that he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him, Jesus, the throne of his father David. I have installed my king, God says to the world. And now the anointed king of Psalm 2 continues to tell what the Lord said to him. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. That's quite an inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. That promise is reflected in the later prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, but it's also reflected in the Great Commission when you think about it. What does the risen King Jesus say to his disciples? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is right now king of everybody, everywhere, lord of the nations. Whether it's being recognized by some as not, that's his status. Therefore, go, and in telling the gospel, telling this news about my triumphant resurrection after I made atonement, Put people on notice, inform them that I'm Lord of everybody and everywhere so that they can become not rebels anymore, but disciples. That'll be signaled in the waters of baptism and then you'll teach them to obey everything I command. That's the meaning of the service we'll come together for tonight. It's reflected in Philippians 2 where Paul once says that once Jesus finished his atoning work on the cross, God exalted his anointed king to the highest place and gave him the name that is the title that's above every name or title, that at the name, the one given to Jesus, every knee will bow. Every presidential knee every Supreme Court justice knee, every ISIS terrorist knee, every Hollywood producer knee, every liberal gospel-distorting pastor knee. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will say, will confess, will declare, will acknowledge Jesus, God's anointed one, Christ, is Lord, King, to the glory of God the Father. And again and again, the book of Revelation announces the final victory of the one who is called King over kings and Lord over lords. 
and loud voices in heaven sing and shout of the time when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, anointed one. And thankfully, he will reign forever and ever. And so in this day of grace and era of the gospel, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son to save it, continues, including this morning, including in this service, to graciously invite and to offer a pardon and a clemency for the rebellion that's happened so far. That's what our sin is. And it's a free gift to us because Christ was the Savior, the substitute, the sacrifice, who on the cross bore all the wrath and penalty that we rebels justly deserved. But now because he has and he's paid that price, he can say to everybody everywhere, because he's not willing that any should perish, he doesn't want that, but all to come to repentance. And so all the invitations now in this era of grace are, come to me. Sinner, why will you die? Receive from me the free gift of forgiveness and salvation and life. And God becomes your loving heavenly father. And Jesus is your savior. And the Holy Spirit is your helper. And the Bible is your guide. Come Find eternal and abundant life in me, Jesus says, right today. But we must not make a mistake and think that after we've said all that is wonderfully to be said about God's grace and the meekness of Christ our Savior, who invites us to come just as we are because of the atonement he's made, to lead the, us to think that in the end, there will be a final day of judgment on all those who, mind-boggling as it seems when you think about it, refuse the pardon, refuse the forgiveness, are so in love with the ways of death and misery that we won't give them up. If that means we don't get to be king ourselves anymore. God's not going to let it just go on forever. What will come of all of this, all the rebellion and the godlessness, those who persist in their God-defying idolatry, those who distort the gospel until it's no longer the gospel at all, leaving those deceived by the deceivers to everlasting ruin, what will happen to those who persist in the savageries of a group like ISIS or those churning out the debaucheries, polluting people in the name of entertainment? It's just unspeakable now. What shows on regular cable television? What will happen to governments and regimes, political regimes, determined in their persecution, including this morning, of God's people and devoted to the extermination of his church. 
Doesn't the world's evil, if looked at honestly and unflinchingly, seem so vast, so deep, so intractable, that except, I mean, when you're not in denial and when you're trying to take an honest look, you begin to wonder how it really will turn out after all. When we're real and serious, what is Jesus, God's Messiah, this world's rightful ruler really going to be able to do in the face of so much evil, so intractable, so much opposition, so much unbelief? You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Wait. That kind of fierce talk of judgment, that's Old Testament. Really? Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 25, 41, that when he acts as judge in the final judgment, he will say to some people, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says that. It's Paul the Apostle of Grace who writes in 2 Thessalonians 1 about what he calls God's righteous judgment, the time when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, deserved judgment and punishment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay, Paul says, the penalty of eternal destruction. There's no reversing it. There's no putting it back together. In the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. And it is the final book of the New Testament that depicts a final judgment so terrible as it says at the end of Revelation 6 with language that echoes the second psalm when the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hide in caves and among the rocks. And they call to the mountains and the rocks Fall on us. They prefer avalanche to what? Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? This is hard stuff. It's hard for us to believe this stuff and take it seriously. I'm sure it's hard for you. It's hard for me. We don't spend much time in these passages. We don't face them very much. And all that we rightly say about God's mercy and grace, it can never be thought of, believed rightly, if it nullifies this reality too, 
Now is the day of salvation. But there is coming a time. There will be a day that is the last day, the last chance. After that calendar day, there is no day. There is no chance for reprieve. Do we believe what we profess to believe about these things? So what should one-time rebel raging sinners do? Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. We've got to realize something. It is true. No nation, including America, is a theocracy. So that our religion is to directly be the law of the land. But it is simultaneously true that every president, every politician, every Supreme Court justice, every local legislator, and every citizen who casts a vote and thereby shapes the policies, at least in a nation like ours, is accountable to this king and to this Christ and will one day answer to him. Therefore, you kings, wise up in the ways that you govern. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun. It means kissing the foot, a sign of total submission, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath. Deserve, not capricious, holy and righteous and deserved. His, righteous, his wrath now held in check but it can flare up in a moment. And so we should now do in this age of grace what the Thessalonians did. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Listen then to how this incredible, compelling psalm comes to an end. Almost a surprise, given the momentum so far. But the last line, thankfully, is this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Considering what we actually deserve, considering what's actually ahead for those who persist in their godlessness, taking refuge in him is precisely what we need to do. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But if you don't believe in him, or maybe you have gotten wise and you have repented, but how seriously do you take the situation and the condition of loved ones, of neighbors, of friends that have never bowed the knee? Because that same chapter, John 3, ends this way. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. He who rejects the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us to wise up. Help us to see all that the Bible teaches, not just the parts more pleasant and easy to hear. Help us to see there are only ultimately two ways to live and two kinds of people. Those who've made it their habit, starting with the good news of the gospel, to live all their lives in right response to your word. Believing what you teach in your word, embracing, trusting in the promises, and living by the commands. If there's anyone here this morning still outside of Christ, apart from him, may they talk to me or one of the other pastors or a Christian friend until they learn from the scriptures the way of salvation. What we are called and invited to do so that we can take refuge in him. And in him, in Jesus, the Savior, the Anointed One, find ourselves happy and whole and healed. Find ourselves safe and secure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.